Good morning, everyone. Happy Independence Day weekend to every, to all of you. Trust that you had a uh, great weekend uh, with your family and friends, uh, praising God, thanking Him for this, this nation and how we are uh, been granted this great privilege to worship God with freedom, with great liberty, uh, with freedom of speech, proclaim God's truth without hindrance, and how God has used this nation so greatly all over the world uh, for the gospel purposes. If you haven't done so, um, take time out today, afternoon, evening, to pray for our country, to pray for her leaders, especially for the president, and to uh, intercede on their behalf that God might grant them wisdom and they might be humble men and women who trust in God in and for all things. Well, we're back in our study in 2 Timothy. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we will focus our time on verse 9, but it has been several weeks, so we'll do a short review of the uh, preceding passages. If you remember verse 3, we find Paul in a dungeon in Rome. He's in prison like a criminal. He's chained up to the wall. It's A.D. 64, um, post-Nero's persecution of Christians. He expects to die in prison, expects to be martyred for the faith. His imprisonment now is wholly different than his previous imprisonment where he wrote Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. Um, There he was in house arrest. Here he's in a dungeon. And we find with great amazement the first word out of Paul's mouth is thanksgiving. It's gratitude. It's words of praise. And the question we asked was, how could Paul, languishing in a prison cell, tormented, persecuted, harassed by uh, the soldiers, Roman soldiers, how could he be filled with praise? And we found that Paul employed three means of grace, and that those means are available to all Christians throughout time, throughout the world, available to us, and that if any believer would employ these means, we can have joy and thanksgiving in our difficult circumstances. The first means of grace that he employed was intercessory prayer. He took his eyes off of his chains, took his eyes off of his circumstances. He did away with self-pity, self-centeredness, and put his eyes toward Timothy, this young man who was trying to do his best in serving Christ. And praying for Timothy, God gave Paul much grace. And to varying degrees, we experience that. Do we not? In our times of difficulty and and struggle, and we pray for others, and remember their difficult circumstances, God eases our hurt. God comforts us. God lifts our spirits. Second is, um, Paul, Paul remembered Timothy's personal love for him. Uh, it's a means of grace. That's why coming to church with a movie theater mentality just won't do. Because you're missing out on a significant means of God to give you and I grace in our Christian lives. To give us strength and hope. It's not just enough to sit with strangers directed towards the pulpit. 
A church is a living body. It's a community where we are to love one another, bear one another's burdens, carry each other's weights, serve and, and, and minister to one another. Because by that memory of someone knowing your name, loving you, caring for you, is a source of great strength. And here Paul remembered Timothy's tears, love for him. And so even though everyone in that prison cell hated him, his Roman soldiers could care less for Paul's welfare. Everyone in Rome deserted him. He was all alone. Even Demas left him. Right? He was all alone and yet he wasn't overwhelmed with sorrow. He was filled with gratitude because he remembered Timothy. The third means of grace was uh, Timothy's genuine faith. Sincere faith. And it's true. You could have 999 people disappoint you, fall away, prove to have spurious faith, prove to have disingenuous, hypocritical faith. But you have one in a thousand who has genuine, sincere love for Christ, faith in Christ. They really look out for the interests of Christ, not for themselves. Wow, that's an incredible source of encouragement. And we do that, do we not? In times of difficulty, we think through people we know, and uh, we skip over people that discourage us, and then we land that one person where we saw firsthand or heard reports of their act of faith, how they're living by faith in a difficult circumstance, or how they're obeying Christ, or how they're praying for others, reaching out to their unbelieving friends or family or neighbors, and it so enlarges our hearts. Well, that's what Paul did in, in prison. He employed these three means, and he was filled with gratitude. And so he turned to Timothy and he implored him to fan and to flame the gift of God, verse 6. This special anointing given to him as an emissary of Paul. Paul was an apostle of Christ. Timothy and Titus were apostles of Paul. And they were given special authority over churches. They were given authority by God through Paul to exercise oversight over various churches. And Paul is saying, don't neglect this authority. Don't neglect the stewardship, this ministry. In fact, fan into a flame. Make it, make it your life's passion. Have it consume you. For we do not receive a spirit of fear, but of power, dunamis, of love, agape, and self-control, sofran. And then we came upon verse 8, that, that important therefore. Anytime you study the Bible and you find a therefore, you need to pause and, and figure out why that's there. In light of this stewardship, in light of this anointing that is given to Timothy, power, love, and self-control, and which we are all able to participate in as well, we can receive these things not through an anointing of Paul laying, on, laying his hands on us, not in a succession of popes you know, through Paul and Peter down to us, but by us walking in the Spirit. All right, Galatians 5.16 First Peter 5, by Galatians 5, by walking in the Spirit, we produce these fruits, right? Love, patience, kindness, peace, gentleness, self-control. We bear these things, and that's how we overcome fear. Paul says, in light of this, that we have received this Spirit, we find Paul's first three of five commands given to Timothy. Right? We find five commands in verses 8 through 18, and we studied through three of those commands. 
the first command was, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. There is well-placed shame and misplaced shame. Shame is a powerful emotion, and we need to discern those two um, with surgical precision. And shame that is well-placed, an honorable man or woman receives that shame and embraces it, bears up under it, and feels the sting of that pain so that he or she might not repeat uh, that decision, that, that way of life, that course of, 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 of life, so that you will remember the sting of it, so that you won't repeat your, your, your mistakes. So an honor of man receives well-placed shame. At the same time, what Paul is saying is, do away, set aside misplaced shame, undeserved shame. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, there is no shame in the gospel. None whatsoever. The Jewish people are trying to shame you, to have you, to force you to stop preaching the gospel. The Roman government, because they're afraid of truth, they're trying to shame you by treating you like a common criminal. Do you understand their tactic, their strategy? Don't allow them to influence you in this way. Set aside this misplaced shame. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And then the second command is, do not be ashamed of me, Christ's prisoner. And so as Christ said, whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, you do them unto me. How we treat fellow Christians is how we are treating Christ. So if we are loving Christians, we are loving Christ. If we give water to a fellow believer, we're giving water to Christ. If a Christian is in prison for the faith, and we visit that Christian while he's in prison, we are visiting Christ, so on and so on, Matthew 25. Therefore, Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of God's people. Right now, that's me. Do not be ashamed. There were men in Rome, who are professing Christians, who were ashamed. Like Peter denied Christ, they denied any relationship with Paul, any affiliation, any koinonia, any fellowship with Paul. Paul says, you, my son Timothy, do not be ashamed. The third command is the positive command. Instead of being ashamed of the gospel or of gospel people, instead Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Share and take your portion of suffering for the gospel of Christ. This is the positive command. Now, I don't remember when we last studied verse 8. But I remember distinctly thinking we were done with verse 8. Are we going to proceed to verse 9? And I was going to gloss over the last five words of verse 8. By the power of God. And I realized, I believe in inerrancy. I believe every word, the syntax of the Bible, every phrase, every sentence, passage, chapter, book, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not like us. We speak Christianese all the time. We say things just to kind of fill in the gap, right? 
And we hear people just, I do this all the time. I say Christian things, Christian lingo, just to kind of, you know, fill, fill, fill time. Like, nice shot. Oh, praise God, you know. I'm not really praising God, but I've got to say something. Praise the Lord. Right? We do things all the time. Right? Nice dinner. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> the Bible never does this. The Bible never just puts in a phrase because Paul needs a transition. Paul needs something, a filler, to move on to his next topic. The Holy Spirit inspired the dotting of the I, crossing the T, every word, every clause, every phrase. And so I had a renewed look at those last five words. And I was gripped by the five words that concludes verse 8. Wrestling with five words by the power of God. And I realized we are not done with studying Paul's third commandment to Timothy. He's not merely telling Paul, Timothy what to do. He's telling Timothy how to do it. He's not just saying suffer for the gospel, period. He's saying, Timothy, you need to suffer for the gospel. And also you make sure when you are suffering for the gospel, you do it by the power of God. You do it by the dunamis of God. You dare not suffer for Christ by your own human strength, relying on your own power. Timothy, don't suffer by act of sheer will and determination, discipline and personal effort. It has been done, it can be done, and many believers still strive under their own strength. And it has ugly fruits, produces ugly fruits, produces self-righteousness, sinful pride, arrogance of the inner man, causes division in the church where you're looking down on others, It produces self-centeredness, self-glory, self-worship, idolatry, self-love. So Paul forbids Timothy to do this on his own strength. Don't do this by the power of legalism. As if by suffering, according to God's word, you're earning salvation. Or you're earning righteousness. This is false religion. This is endemic of all false religions out there where they involve themselves, engage themselves in outward deeds of, 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 of hurting themselves, of some rituals, physical acts to gain the favor of God or to grow in maturity, grow in faith. You're not to do this by the power of sinful flesh, right? We resort to sin to endure through suffering. Right, should we ever have our hands raised who've, who've done this? You know, endure suffering out of anger, right? Out of bitterness. Just out of just the sinful flesh. Don't you hate those Roman soldiers? Right? Don't give them the gratification, right? Outlive them, right? You know, just out of like sinful anger and bitterness, you suffer. We do this some, often. This is what God forbids. We're not to do it by wrong doctrine. Be motivated by wrong things for suffering. Where if we suffer, God will give us some material blessings. If we suffer, God will answer some specific prayer requests. We see um, people in the Roman Catholic Church do this a lot. They're praying for 
a genuine need in their life. Someone is ill. Someone is in grave need. And so they pray on their knees for several hours. I read of a guy who, who walked on his knees for days uh, in physical penance so that God might hear him pray. And his suffering will cause God to answer his prayers. Or others do all these physical things and suffer that God might answer them. Paul tells Timothy, and Paul is telling us, to not suffer relying on our own strength. And though in this passage it is specific to suffering for the gospel, uh, for our purposes, it can be applied for both. Suffering for Christ and suffering in Christ. We are to suffer by God's power. Whether we're suffering for the gospel or we're just suffering. We're going through trial and pain and heartache for various reasons, various difficulties. For our purposes, it's, we can make it broader for application. We are not to rely on our own strength. The Bible gives us three reasons why we must not rely on ourselves. The first reason is that God is not a pragmatist. God is not a pragmatist. To God, how we obey Him is as important as obeying His commandments. Pragmatism is the arch enemy of right doctrine and is the arch enemy of right life. This philosophy has swept through the Christian church in our country. Pragmatism reigns supreme and secure over evangelicalism today. Vast majority, I would say a vast majority of Christians today are ardent supporters and followers of this anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-theology worldview. What is pragmatism? Webster's New World Dictionary defines it as a method or tendency in philosophy which determines the meaning or truth of all concepts and tests their validity by their practical results. It is a a worldview that determines the value of something by its practical results. To sum it up, if it works, it is true. If it doesn't work, it's not valuable and it's not true. It's the idea, it doesn't matter what you do, just get it done. I don't care how you do it, I don't care why you do it, just get it done. Now, this is helpful in sports. This is helpful in business. This is helpful, I don't know, cooking and cleaning, but this is anti-God, anti-faith. It's anti-sound theology, sound life in the Christian faith. This is common in the world and has overflowed into the church. And it has devastated the Christian faith. We see the fruits of pragmatism all over the place in the church today. We find unbiblical ministry methods employed by churches because to them it works. 
It grows the church. It makes people happy. It results in, quote-unquote, success in ministry. You know, I, I'm not going to mention the name, but there's a church nearby, a mega church. Um, not a mega, but a sizable church. And I couldn't believe it when I heard that they were doing a capital campaign as well. They were doing it a few months earlier than us. And their way of getting their people to tithe was giving all the members of tithe a money-back guarantee. It's unbelievable. I'm not making this up. You can Google it and you'll find it. Right. They told the members, based on Malachi 3.10, God promises blessing and financial prosperity if we tithe. So for three months, give your tithe. And after three months, if you feel like God has not been faithful to his promise, you can ask for your money back and we'll give you each penny back. Now, they didn't put like with interest because that's three months. So, you know, at least 3% now, right, in the savings account, maybe more in CD. That's absurd. That's crazy. Talk about misinterpreting the Bible. Malachi is the nation of Israel and Judah. How can we just conveniently not submit ourselves to not eating pork, not eating lobster, right? You know, we play ball on Saturdays, and right? On Friday nights, we don't observe the Sabbath. And yet, here on this one aspect, we take it out of context and apply it to the Christian church and claim God's promise. And we are to judge whether God's been faithful or not. We give a tithe and we determine, God, you are good. No, God, you, you didn't keep your promise. Like, I expected at least triple return. I only got 2.5 to me. Right, you are unfaithful. It puts man in the position of God and authority. And it puts God in a subservient role of our slave. Now, when I researched this online, it's all the rage. These um, church marketing people, right, are endorsing this left and right. And you know why? Because for them, uh, their worldview, their core value is pragmatism. It works. Just look at your church revenue. It will go up. People are so selfish, right? People are so self-centered, and they're all vested in their own self-interest that they'll give because they want the blessing and they want the financial return. Uh, so they will give. And so it will be a win-win situation. And only a small percentage will dare ask the church for their money back. So it's a good way to uh, raise funds. All right. Pragmatism results in unbiblical methods in ministry. Causes people to be wholly uncommitted to prayer. A pragmatist finds no reason to pray, finds it a waste of time, just an empty ritual. They'll work, they'll strategize, they'll plan, they'll labor because they see the practical results. But in prayer, they don't see the practical results, at least immediately. So for them, prayer meetings, devotion to prayer are a waste. They're preoccupied with church growth, numerical growth. God's interested in, in 
holiness and maturity and Christ-likeness. But for them, those aren't measurable things. So pragmatists are concerned with just simply numerical growth. We find a decline in God-centered preaching where the pulpit is geared to cater to the emotional needs of the congregation, to entertain them, entertain the goats, right, and, and not feed the sheep, the flock of God, cause the pulpit to be marginalized and set to the corner, and things like drama and interactive like art, you know, like dancing and you know, pottery making and you know, like actually like drawing things like stick figures, all these things have taken the role of communicating God's word rather than preaching. Um all in the name of pragmatism, why it works, people like it more than long sermons. And it snowballs on self because it promotes and produces more wrong doctrine, wrong theology. It is indeed anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-sound doctrine. Paul is saying, Timothy, God is not a pragmatist. You don't just jump in and, and suffer, thinking that external suffering done by human flesh, done out of pride, done out of sin, will somehow please God. Right? You're... You do that, Timothy, and you do that today, and you're building your house with wood, hay, and straw. Before the believer's judgment, when we are tested by fire, 1 Corinthians 3, everything will be burned up because it's just at that time, God will expose the motivations of our hearts, and it will be laid bare why we labored, why we served, why we suffered. And if we did it, if we did it out of our own Strength, no reward, nothing that will please the Lord, right? nothing that will glorify Him. We will be, we're still saved, right? The land still passes through, we're still Christians, but no reward, no pleasure of God. God is as interested in the inner man, how and why, as what we do. So first reason Paul forbids Timothy to suffer out of strength, own strength, is that God is not a pragmatist. Second reason is he will fail. Right? It doesn't work. You might have tried this and you've experienced firsthand. Right? If you are living your life, Christian life, out of your own strength, you have a very short Christian life ahead of you. Right? You're going to hit the wall again and again and again until God gives you grace and you realize, wow, I, I should try something different. It's not working. Right, maybe I shouldn't bang my head against this wall. I should like open this door and walk through this door that God had prepared for me. Right. We stand no chance of standing firm on our own strength. If anyone understood this, Paul understood this. He was a battle-tested warrior for Christ. He had shared his, he had faced his share of battles. When he came face to face with his share of sufferings, even Paul, the great apostle, this spiritual giant, 
found his limit. He maxed out, humbled him. He saw his own weaknesses, limitations, frailties. He gained intimate knowledge of his own inadequacy. He got a master's degree of his own inadequacies. He suffered under disappointments, hurts, and pains, and he couldn't lift them. And so he realized firsthand, only way it's possible is by doing it by the power of God. You know, we, we see the uniqueness, the excellency, the, the supremacy of Christ and all his miracles and all the times he confronted demons and they were just afraid and petrified and fled at his presence. But we see Christ's greatness in John 13 through 17. Our Lord, his heart is breaking. His heart is like wax. It is melting within him. He has no spiritual strength. In a matter of a few hours, he'll be hanging on a cross, drinking the cup of God's holy wrath. And he'll have to drink it all. And he'll experience hell on Calvary. All our sins will be laid upon him. And he'll be cast out, forsaken by God the Father whom he loved. That's what he dreaded all his life. And it was now imminent. He goes to Gethsemane and he's so filled with his raw emotion that he's sweating out blood. He came, he was so sorrowful, he confessed to his disciples he was at the point of death. And yet at the final hours before this agony, what did Christ do? He turned to his disciples, these selfish men, and he washed their feet. He served their need. They were afraid. They were anxious. They were without peace. So Christ expounded on the hope of heaven. He expounded how he's leaving them, but he will send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to care for them. He expounded upon how he is going to his father's house, and there's many rooms, a place prepared for them. And to just... Be sorrowful just for a little while because his return is soon. He ministered to others while his own needs were being met. He gently and yet firmly served them by pouring himself out to the disciples before even the cross, experiencing hell on the cross. Now in the book of Acts, Acts 15, you know the Bible you know that there was a sharp disagreement between two leaders of the Christian faith, between Paul and Barnabas. They had such a sharp dis- disagreement, they couldn't resolve it. They couldn't find unity. They went their separate ways. Now, what was the, the flashpoint of this disagreement? It was all over a young man named John Mark. In Acts 13, they went out on a missionary journey, their first missionary journey, and this uh, poor young man was uh, outclassed, outmatched, overwhelmed. He didn't, he wasn't adequately prepared. He wasn't mature enough. He wasn't strong enough spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every way. I mean, he just got just brutalized out there. So after a few months on the mission field, 
he walked away. He said, I, I didn't sign up for this. He quit. He was homesick. He went back home. Now Barnabas is an older man. He's a son of encouragement. That's his nickname. Right? It's hardest to encourage believers. And John Mark was repentant. He was broken now. He wanted to go again and serve Christ. And Barnabas understood. I mean, he didn't hold it against him. So he told Paul, hey, dear brother, here is a young man whose heart is broken now. He's ready. He wants to serve. Let's take him along so that he can redeem himself. So that he can serve Christ. And Paul said, no way. Right? The mission field is not a place to train disciples, raise disciples. It is for proven disciples. He wants to grow. He wants to learn. Let him do it. You know, in Pebbles ministry, right? Let him do it back at home, not in the mission field. I will never, right, take this young man with him. I put my life in his hands and he flaked out. I, I lost trust. I can't serve with him again. These two men were so strong, they both wouldn't budge. Right? Barnabas saying, we need to love this brother and give him another opportunity. Paul said, no way. And so it was such a sharp disagreement, they went their separate ways. About 10 years later, Paul found himself in Troas. He was there waiting for Titus. He sent Titus to the church of Corinth with a firm, strong letter full of rebuke, full of of condemnation, full of correction. He was hard-pressed on every side. He was um, well-worn by ministry. By now, he had suffered physically. And he had experienced the most hurtful suffering, suffering in the hand of fellow believers. Fellow Christians hurt him. This, this broke his heart. So here is Troas waiting for Titus, and Titus is not, not there. At the appointed time, he's not, he hasn't arrived. So for Paul, all his fears and anxieties over the church at Corinth are multiplying within him. He's afraid that maybe the false teachers took the church astray, that they hate Paul, they reject him. Now Satan has taken a, taken a stronghold of the church at Corinth. They're not repentant, and they're uh, straying away from Christ. At the same time, while he's at Troas, 2 Corinthians 2 says, there was an open door for the gospel. There were people there who were hungering for the gospel, ready to repent and trust in Christ. Here Paul realized the difference between Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle. Because Paul, Christ, kept on ministering. Here Paul, he walked away. He quit. He turned his back on people who wanted the gospel. He had said earlier in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He had said in 2 Timothy that he was appointed as a preacher, apostle, herald for the gospel. He was made a minister, Ephesians 3, for the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet here, he faced his limit. He turned away. Suffering by his own strength cause him to fail and fall away or walk away from this opportunity. And so we find later on in Second Timothy, he says, bring John Mark with, with you when you come. Timothy, he's helpful to me in my ministry. Right? 
He, he no longer held John Mark uh, in that way. He re- restored him in his heart because he himself experienced failure. Paul understood. And that's why he told Timothy, don't suffer in your own power. You don't stand a chance. Don't you dare go into the fray relying on yourself. You'll be in for a rude awakening. If it's an external fight, maybe we can stand on our own strength. But this isn't an external fight. Though suffering is done to us externally, the battle is internal. Battle is in the inner man. And in the inner man, no man stands a chance. And we experience this, right? If you haven't, then, you know, just wait till the next point. You know, it'll come soon. And one day, you'll understand. I understand for some of you, this is just flying right over your heads because you don't have the cup to understand what it's like to have external suffering afflict your inner man and be overwhelmed um, by the sins of the heart. A few years ago, I was talking to a seminarian, and he was asking me, you know, Pastor James, what, how have you suffered in life and ministry? And I was like, oh, brother, you know, you know, ministry and, you know, going through losing my dad and going through this whole adoption with Ethan. I was sharing with him for like 20 minutes about the sufferings of for Christ and in Christ. And then, you know, you got to do that, right? They ask, you got to ask back. I said, well, how have you suffered for what, what sufferings have you experienced? And he told me, oh, when he was in high school, his girlfriend broke up with him. And I hurt him so much. Our fellowship was over, you know. <laughs> you could, like, hear the Holy Spirit leave the room. <laughs> like, my heart just like, see you later, brother. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, right, so I was like, wow, there are people like that in the world, you know. Their greatest, like, pain is like, you know, that's what that, that, uh, Katie Couric, she was interviewed before she lost her husband. What was the greatest pain she experienced? It was not making her varsity cheerleading team in high school. That was, after that, it was all uphill, right? After that great pain of life until, you know, she lost her husband. So for some, what are you talking? I don't understand. You know, suffering, yeah, I suffer, I, I suffer but I'm okay. But some of you out there, you understand how suffering externally oppresses the inner man. Jim Andrews in his book, Polishing God's Monuments, had one quote. He said, hard times bring out hard places in our hearts. Another person said, the same heat that melts butter hardens clay. Pain, suffering, when we rely on our own strength, can take you to a dark place. It's like jumping off a cliff. And, and hitting the water, and you're waiting for the bottom, and there's no bottom. You're just sinking and sinking and sinking. That's what external suffering can do in a person's heart. I was talking to a brother at church recently. He was telling me he's, he's fighting his flesh. He's going through a difficult circumstance in his life and his family. He's wrestling, but he's afraid because he knows 
that this can take him to a dark place. His heart can get away from him. Right now, his heart's unruly, but if he's not diligently fighting it with the gospel, he's afraid because there'll be a point of no return. And he'll become bitter, become stubborn, become angry, and outright rebellious. And he knows it's just a few steps away in his heart. And it's fearing. That is why Paul forbids, pleads Timothy not to stand on his own strength. Because failure is assured. It don't stand a chance. The third reason that Paul implores Timothy and implores us to suffer by the power of God is because so that God might get all the glory. God might get all the glory. You see, brothers and sisters, in our suffering, it's not about us. We are so selfish. And we're so self-centered. When we suffer, it's all about God. I'm right here. Right? When are you going to end my suffering? I can't wait till my suffering ends. I can't wait. Where is my time of you know, sunshine and rainbows? Right? Where is peace and tranquility for me? Right? When will people understand me and cater to me and pray for me and help me? And the Bible says, it's not about you. Suffering is not to be used as a means to get attention. Right? To, to get love. And where you are the end. It's not about you. It's not about me. We are so self-centered. We're such lovers of self, such idolaters. It is about God. And we do it in our own strength. The focus will be ourselves. We do it by the power of God. The focus is rightly placed on God. The spotlight is rightly placed on God. God, He... He is moved by His own glory. He will not share His glory with another. He will not allow anyone to boast before Him that they suffered, that they lived, that they served with their own strength, power, and might. He destroys any platform for man to stand so that He alone will get the glory for all things. That His name alone might be exalted. On the day of, day of the Lord, Isaiah 2, 11 and 17. It's repeated twice in Isaiah 2. The proud looks of a man shall be brought low. The lofty arrogance of men shall be humbled. And the lo- Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And then six verse later, he repeats it. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord will be exalted on that day. Replete throughout scriptures. Romans 3.27 What becomes of our boasting? Where is our boasting? In our salvation, in our sanctification, in our suffering, in our lives. Where is our boasting? And Paul says it is excluded. There is no boasting. God alone boasts. God's the only one who will be exalted on that day. 
1 Corinthians 1, 28, 29, God chose what is low, despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works of man, so that no one should boast. Not about us. So suffering in our sinful hearts, we want to use that for our selfish purposes, to magnify ourselves. But it's not about us, it's about God and His glory. So the first question was, what is the command? The command is suffering, suffer for the gospel by the power of God. It's a twofold command. Why the qualification by the power of God? Because God is not a pragmatist. Secondly, we stand no chance of standing in our own strength. And thirdly, so that God might get all the glory. And the third question, perhaps the most important question is, how do we then suffer by the power of God? So how do I do this? How do I make sure I don't suffer in Christ and for Christ on my own strength? And how do I make sure I'm suffering by the power of God. What, what are the criteria? What are the steps? What are the pursuits? Give you ten pursuits. Right. Ten pursuits to make sure you're standing on the power of God. First of all, fight pragmatism in your life with the Word of God. Right. Fight pragmatism. When you're washing your car, it's good to be pragmatic. Right. When you're at work, it's good to be pragmatic. With your money, their time, in a sense, be pragmatic. But in the Christian faith, it is anathema. It is our enemy. We need to fight this false ideology with truth, with the Word of God. Second Corinthians 10, 4-6, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds, destroy, destroy wrong ideas, wrong doctrine, wrong theology. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we need to understand pragmatism is against God. It's a lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It is disobedient to Christ. We need to take captive the, pragmat- the, the pragmatist that's in all of us and make those ideas, subjugate them by the Word of God and submit ourselves to Christ in every way. Right. Right. Praying is not just enough. How and why we pray is important. That's why we study the Bible. Right. Coming to church is not enough. Why we come, how we come is important to God. So study the Bible of how and why we come. Loving God, just loving Him is not enough. Why we love God and how we love God is equally important. Where do we learn that? With the Word of God. So fight pragmatism, the Word of God. If you're fighting pragmatism, you will find this desperate desire to understand God's Word. But 
if you see a lack of that, it's because you are sleeping with the enemy. You're comfortable with pragmatism. Pragmatism is just innate, just what seems good to us. So why study the Bible when it just seems good to us? I just go by you know, my, my thinking, my experience, my feeling. The first is fight pragmatism in your life with the Word of God. Second, abide in Christ by feeding on God's Word. Right? Make God's Word your delight, your treasure, your prize. And when you're suffering for Christ or in Christ, what is your functional Savior? Right? Tim Keller coined that term. When you're hard-pressed, when you're suffering for Christ or you're suffering in Christ, where do you go for solace, for comfort, for refuge, for encouragement? You know, for me, uh, it's music, right? You know, that's my functional savior. Right? Springsteen has a place in my heart. You know, he needs to become less and Christ needs to become more. And so the toxic combination of... Uh, Springsteen on iTunes. So Siren looks at our credit card bill and she sees like how much, how many songs I bought. She's like, wow, I need to pray for you. It's, you're struggling. Right. My another functional savior is uh, humor. Right. I run to humor. I tell jokes. I make light of things. I crack jokes. So if you think I'm funny, that means I'm struggling. Right? <laughs> if you think, wow, he's funny today, that means like I'm in a horrible day. Right. All these things, right, that I run to, what do you run to? I have some women run to frozen yogurt, right? And they're telling the truth. That's a, that really helps them in their walk. Or some hobby or some pursue some relationship, right? That's human strength, right? That's part of the flesh. Non-Christians at all times. Whether it's music, whether it's money, whether it's friends or relationships, whether it's food, whether it's drugs, that's what the world does, right? Doing it by God's power is when we are hard-pressed, we run to God. And how do we run to God? We run to God's Word, right? Psalm 94, 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your word, your consolations, your truths delight my soul. So when your anxious thoughts multiply because of external suffering, what, what is your consolation? What is your delight? What is your help? If you want to stand, the power of God is the word. We need to go to God's word, run to God, and delight in his word. Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words came, I ate them. They are my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Jeremiah 23, 8, I desired your, your word more than my daily bread. They were my heart's delight. Third way to overcome, to stand by the power of God is cast your cares upon God. Cast your cares. First Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on God, for He cares for you. A proud man standing on his own strength, on his own flesh, standing out of sin, will not pray. And I say this so often. They're feeding themselves like secular quotes. You know, whatever doesn't kill me will make me stronger, right? 
You know, those kind of quotes. They'll strategize. They'll plan. They'll, they'll worry. They'll, they'll do things. Or they'll re, rewind that suffering, the offense, how someone has caused them to suffer over and over again. Like Blu-ray high definition, right? Before they go to sleep, they'll replay it like 50 times to analyze every spec to make sure that the full offense is, is you know, received. Right? So that you're plotting your revenge. Right? Plotting how you will fight back. Right? You'll domesticate that bitterness. You'll pet it. Right? You'll feed it. You'll water it. Right? You'll cause it to grow. And that animal will rage inside your heart. And that small little puppy called bitterness will grow into a wild animal and devour you. Right? Unless you cast your burdens on the Lord. Right? You give it to God. Right? Jim Andrews said, the one difference between godly people and those who aren't is that, God, is that the godly will intercept these emotions bundle them up with their burdens and lay both of them right where they belong before the Lord. The ungodly will take these burdens and just harbor them and cause them to be bitter and angry. The godly will take these things and cast it to the Lord. Fourthly, be certain of God's purpose for your suffering and that his purpose will be accomplished. Be certain of God's purpose for your suffering and be certain that it will be accomplished. Non-believers, they don't understand why they suffer their suffering. And that adds the bitterness to their torment. They don't understand why they're in pain, why suffering exists, why they're hurt so deeply. And for them, it's just chaos. There's no meaning. There's no rhyme, no reason, no purpose. And it causes them to lose heart. Causes them to lose themselves. As Christians, when we are doing it by God's power, we are certain of God's purpose. And His purpose will stand. What is that purpose? It's it's Christ-likeness. God is not just being capricious. He's not... You know, has nothing better to do than like make us suffer. He's not doing this out of just a whimsical, you know, decision uh, to to torment us. He's got a specific purpose in mind, and that is to make you and I more like Christ. And He understands, and we need to understand that Christ likeness is not done in a one-hour sermon. It's not done in a second-hour Bible study. It's not accomplished in a school or a seminary or Bible college. We can't grow like Christ just simply praying. We need heavier weights to cause micro-tears in our spiritual muscles. And only weight that's heavy enough is suffering in this world. Only such pain will cause us to truly grow into the likeness of Christ. So if we desire to be Christ-like, then when we go through suffering, it's like a gift. It's like a treasure. It's, it's like a gift of grace by God directly to us because we know I'm going to be more like Christ. I'm going to be more mature. 
I'm going to have a greater grasp of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love now. Praise God. God is so good to give me this because now I will mature finally as a man or woman of God. If you don't have suffering in your life, then you should beat your chest. You should say, God, why are you treating me right? as an outsider, as not a part of your family? Right? Why are you treating me like a foster child? How come you don't care for my soul and you don't discipline me? Right? I, 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 a foolish child would think not getting disciplined is a gift. A wise child would know it's a mark of lack of love. Same thing for the Christian. Right? You understand, suffering is a gift. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who, lo- who, who love God, all things work for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What is that the good? It is verse 29. To be conformed to the image of His Son. Conformed to the image of His Son. That is the good. It's not general good. God has a specific good in mind. To make you and I more like Christ. God uses all things, particularly His key instruments. His suffering. Not only for maturity, but for ministry, suffering is required. J. Oswald Sanders once said that there are three requirements to be a godly man, to be a true servant of God. Three requirements. All three start with the yes. First is sovereignty. God sovereignly raises up those whom He chose to lead. Second was servanthood. A godly leader must be a servant. The third S was suffering. He said suffering is a tool which God employs in the life of the Christian to make him a spiritual leader, a godly leader. He told told a story of how in his first church he overheard an older older women uh, talking to each other. And one woman said to the other, what do you think of this new preacher, Oswald Sanders? The other woman replied, he's not bad, but he'll be better after he has suffered. And suffer he did. He nursed his first wife until she died. He later remarried, nursed his second wife until she died. He went to live with his niece, to whom he ministered until she passed away. It was during this time he wrote his book, Spiritual Leadership. Suffering is not just for maturity. Suffering is for ministry. So understand God's purpose. God wants to make you more like Christ. And God wants to make you and I more effective for Christ. So if we say no to suffering, right, or we say, I'll suffer but by, by my own strength, by my own power, you're saying no to holiness. And you're saying no to usefulness in the church. What number are we on? Number five. Number four. Number five. Therefore, delight in your sufferings. Delight in your sufferings. Knowing this. 
knowing that suffering as a saint is God's means of drawing us into a greater knowledge of Him, knowing that suffering enables us to know God as we would not otherwise know Him. Paul tell, Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter 4.13 to rejoice in your sufferings. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.10, that is why for Christ's sake, Paul said, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Knowing all the benefits that result from trials, we ought to delight, rejoice, seek after suffering. Number six, the way to stand by the power of God is by blessing your enemies. Blessing your enemies. Those that are causing you suffering today. Bless them. Matthew 5, 44, 45. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what Christ exact, did exactly. First Peter 2.23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Romans 12.14 Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. To the contrary, verse 20 and 21 If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Let me share with you a story familiar to many about Pastor John Bunyan. He was prisoned for 12 years because he preached the Bible and he would not conform to the false religion of Church of England. Bunyan's older, oldest daughter Mary was born blind and he said it was like pulling the skin off of his bones not to be able to care for her while he was in prison. At an early age, his mother and his sister died. His first wife died, leaving him with four kids. He eventually remarried. His second wife was pregnant when he was taken away to prison. She miscarried. He could not comfort her. At any point, he could agree to not preach the gospel any longer and he will be set free. But he held firm to his faith. Pastor Bunyan believed that God is sovereign in suffering. And He divinely appoints suffering in the lives of believers. In writing about revenge, Pastor Bunyan exhorted his listeners not to hate those who caused them pain because God Himself appointed them and allowed them to come and inflict them with that pain. He preached not to get agitated by the suffering itself because God brought it about for their good to see it through God's eyes. He believed the very people, the specific people that were, was placed in your life to cause suffering was placed there by God's sovereignty. Right? God didn't just design our lives with broad strokes. He has intimately ordained and and appointed uh, even the persecutors, even the tormentors. So to these individuals, we do not curse or threaten. We bless them. Right? We minister to them. We serve them. 
we proclaim the gospel to them. Number seven, vindicate God in your suffering. Vindicate God in your suffering. In a devotion by um, W. Glenn Evans, uh, he wrote this. Let me just read it to you. I will not demand that God explain himself to me at any time. For this is characteristic of the unregenerate man. I must be willing to let God be unreasonable in my view if necessary. Because he is not concerned with my understanding, but with my faith. The unregenerate man sees contradiction in the world and in his life. And demands God that God justify himself before him. The believing man makes no such demand. He instead believes God supremely. But we don't demand that God answer, why am I suffering in this way? Why are you doing this to me? What is the reason for this? No. In view of our sins and our salvation, we gladly submit to what He has portioned out for us. I guess number nine, don't lie about your sufferings. Right. I don't know, our church, in pursuing our right beliefs about God, we have subtly um, given ourselves to a Christian culture that is not wholly biblical in this area, where we find believers repeatedly, um, maybe it's not a shame culture, like spinning suffering, lying about suffering, hiding it, minimizing it, and just repeating the Christianese of, oh, God is sovereign, God is good, God is faithful. Yeah, I know you said that, but how are you doing? Oh, you know, God is good. How can I pray for you? Oh, God is sovereign. Okay, I'll see you next week, you know, (laughs) right? Uh, They don't communicate, they don't open up. There's a quote called um, Gracious Uncertainty. If our certainty is only in our beliefs, beliefs about God, we develop a sense of self-righteousness. Our mindset is to believe in God, but our hearts are heavy because though we believe in God's sovereignty, we don't know God's sovereign plan for us. Therefore, we can be honest about our pain at the same time affirm God's sovereignty. Does that, does that make sense? Right? I know God's sovereign, but I didn't know if His sovereign plan was for Ethan to be adopted into our family. When I was praying for my dad in the hospital bed, I, I believe God's sovereignty, but my heart was heavy because was God's will for my dad to live or die? So for us, we're not undermining God's sovereignty when we Speak of our hurt, our disappointment, and our pain. That is exactly what the psalmist did in the Psalms. Honest, brutally honest about what they're going through. That's what Jeremiah did in his Jeremiah Lamentations. That's what Paul did in St. Corinthians. You read 
2 Corinthians, and Paul is not, oh, it's great. Man, ministry is so fun. It's like a carnival cruise ship, and we're going all these neat places and experiencing God's grace in different ways. You know, some cities are harder than others, but overall, man, God is good. You don't read that in 2 Corinthians. You read his his testimony was heartbreaking and recounting how he's experiencing suffering and loss for the sake of Christ. So in human flesh, in human strength, we hide. We don't want to show our weakness, right? We we hide our suffering. We we bundle ourselves in many layers to protect ourselves. We tell everybody, wow, our life is good. Our family is great. Job is perfect. My life is just, man, perfect. And we hide in our, 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 our rooms and we cry alone, right? That's human strength. By God's strength is we share our lives openly. Right? We share our hurts, disappointments, the conflicts that we experience in our, in, our, in our relationships at home, with our friends. At the same time, we share God's sovereignty, God's purpose in His, in His workings in our lives. And then finally, the way to uh, suffer by the power of God is to know that there is an end. That it's not forever. That heaven is near and heaven is secure. One day, the fighting will cease. One day, we'll hear the trumpet call of God and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are still alive will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord forever. That day will come. And First Peter 3 through 5 tells us that our inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is kept in heaven for us, and it is by God's power guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If it's in our power, we can't sleep. Because what if we lose our salvation? What if in my flesh I deny Christ and I lose my salvation? We can't stand. The Bible tells us, no, God's power is holding our salvation and heaven and our inheritance for us. And not only is it near, it is secured for us. He promises it. It's kept for us. It's guarded by God. It's protected by God. The truth that we will spend eternity with Him in glory. Therefore, knowing the power of God, we have an eternal perspective that whatever we're experiencing in terms of suffering and pain in the earth, it is momentary. It is for a limited time. But eternity in heaven right, is secure. And it's forever. And that's waiting for us. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you. We thank you for our sufferings in our immaturity and foolishness and our sinfulness. We often spurn suffering. We bemoan the fact that we suffer. We try to run away and often try to stand on our own strength. 
But God, you've given us grace. You've given us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe what the Bible has spoken to us. And so, Lord, would you grant us to endure suffering with the power of God, to vindicate you in every way, to know your purpose for our sufferings, knowing that it's making us more like Christ and making us more effective for ministry, knowing that your gracious right hand has appointed us for these things, Lord, that we would speak the truth, have our hearts pour out in our suffering and yet delight in your sovereignty, all the while knowing that this is not forever. One day this uh, fight will be over, the struggle will end, the war will cease, and uh, you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more crying, no more pain. Old order of things will have passed away. New order of things would have come and be with you forever. So knowing that eternity is near and it is kept for us, it is secured for us, help us, Lord, rely on your power, your inexhaustible, your infinite power that is available to us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.